Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Ben Golliver, national NBA writer for the Washington Post, and there's a lot to talk about. We tried to cover as much of it as we could, a lot on the Eastern Conference Finals, which is, of course, still going between the Bucks and the Raptors, what we've taken away so far, where we see the series going. Also, the Western Conference Finals are major takeaways for both franchises, and Ben had the awesome experience of being in the, he calls it the dungeon, being in the, the secure room during this remarkable NBA draft lottery. So we talk about the experience and the Pelicans moving forward as well, and a lot of other topics. If you've listened to a podcast I do with Ben, you know how that can go. We talk Lakers snacks, we talk about a lot of other things as well. So this episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that Podcast One promo code for a 50% welcome bonus. Pluto TV, leading free streaming television service. Lots of great stuff on there. Yahoo Daily Fantasy. You can go to yahoo.com slash daily fantasy and use the pod25 promo code for $25 in free play when you make your first deposit. True Car, great place to sell or trade in your car. And CBS Sports HQ, which you can check out on your streaming platforms. This episode runs about an hour 15 and lots of great topics in here. So I hope you really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure, Danny. Long time no talk. How are you doing? Doing well. I, I'm excited that after the la- m- lack of drama, I mean, there was certainly drama in certain moments of the Western Conference Finals that we do really have an East Finals. And, and to me, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. Game four of that series just happened, Toronto tying it up. I'm really excited to see where this goes. Oh, for sure. You know, I was in that draft lottery room last week, so I saw a lot of people doing like public prayer motions with their hands. And I'll bet you that Adam Silver was doing the same thing last night with that game four from Toronto, because I'll be honest, I was not really that impressed or convinced by the Raptors through three games. I know that they pushed uh, Milwaukee pretty hard game one before collapsing. And then they kind of eked out, you know, a weird game three where there's foul trouble on both sides and, you know, Kawhi has to play 52 minutes and it goes to double overtime. I really wasn't convinced, you know, very much by that game three, but they really came out and laid the wood to uh, Milwaukee in game four. So I think not only just from the, uh, you know, the tied at two standpoint uh, of it being more interesting, I also just think qualitatively it's become a better series. Agreed. And I think the most important part for me was Toronto's offense looking so much better because my understanding of this series had kind of been similar to a few other series that we've seen in the past. I mean, I was I was thinking of San Antonio Warriors over the last couple of years, but you could go to many different examples, which is when one team has a lot of trouble producing reliable offense, it's generally not as interesting of a series because the question becomes, can they make threes? Can they get things together? And certainly the Raptors have enough talent where they can, you know, they can have a game and make, you know, 40%, 45% from three and the variance there can get them in it. But they were able to generate good looks. They were able to get to the free throw line and be productive without relying as much on the the variance elements of it. I thought they were they were doing a better job, and also it kind of reinforced something for me that was that was in game three, but I didn't know if it was going to continue. Which was that Toronto's half court defense was fabulous, and 
the Raptors have great defensive personnel all over the floor. I mean, you can go with Kawhi doing a masterful job on Giannis and being a nasty help defender. Pascal Siakam, their bigs are very talented defensively, but even guys like Fred Van Vliet. Van Vliet, not the tallest guy, but he's strong and he works really hard and he's intelligent and he executes. And so the Raptors doing better in what looked like more sustainable ways than I expected on both ends of the floor is what makes this really a series to me. For sure. I mean, starting with Toronto's offense, I've always kind of subscribed that there's a less is more element to Kawhi Leonard where when he's doing what he had to do in game seven of the Sixers and taking like, you know, 30 plus shots and it's grinding down, it's a lot of ISO. That's when I like Toronto the least because I think it it puts their supporting guys who are all really important into that marginalized system and, and role where uh, they're more likely to drift out of the picture. I think, and not that you would ever, you know, wish injury on on anybody, but it almost was like a blessing in disguising game four, where it did seem like he was conserving uh, his movement with his leg. You know, it, he wasn't trying to, you know, maybe uh, be everywhere at once like he was earlier in the series, and that allowed a lot of oxygen for Kyle Lowry, Marcus Saul, Serge Ibaka. Norman Powell, a lot of these guys who can be kind of hit or miss players, all to get into the flow to really feel good about themselves and to contribute in a big time way. I mean, you look at that game four, it's like Toronto kind of beat Milwaukee at its own game, right? They won the uh, rebounding battle. They, uh, you know, the free throws, the three pointers, the, uh, uh, you know, the bench scoring was just like heavily tilted towards the Raptors. So it was a really impressive performance from them. Uh, you mentioned their defense. You know, I think their defense is good, but I think Milwaukee's half-court offense is making them look great, right? I mean, I think you can circle Eric Bledsoe and some of these other guards for Milwaukee as uh, having really crimped uh, what uh, the Bucks are trying to do in terms of spacing around Giannis. Uh, Bledsoe has just been an absolute train wreck in these Eastern Conference Finals offensively. And, you know, frankly... Uh, I think he shed a little bit of that Drew Bledsoe trash talk stuff by being on the winning side of that second row series, but uh, he wasn't very good against Boston either. And Kyrie Irving imploding and sort of being the headline uh, disaster maybe saved Eric Bledsoe a little bit from any sort of criticism or uh, backlash. But you know he's had a, a really long run here of just completely struggling and. Uh, you can tell it's influencing Giannis's decisions. He doesn't have as much room to operate. He's still doing whatever he can. He's attacking quickly. He's trying to find the right reads. But, uh, you know, it only takes one, you know, poor shooter to kind of screw up everything they're trying to do on offense. And that's been Bledsoe. I don't know about how, how you feel. I would start Brogdon in game five. And I understand there's going to be some people who say, well, you know, it's a tied series. Nobody's really won on the road yet. Do you need to make the adjustments? I mean, to me, Brogdon started all season long. Uh, I think he he didn't look great in Game Four, but he's had some really nice moments, uh, you know, since he returned from the injury. Uh, I would do it in front of the home crowd as a spark. I, w- I want his defense on the court when Kawhi's on the court. I want his uh, his playmaking and shooting combination on the court to kind of get them off on the right foot. Because I think if they get to another slow start here, uh, everyone's going to be thinking, you know, the weight of this pressure that Milwaukee has avoided all season long. I mean, they're kind of in a cocoon uh, out there, you know, protected from, uh, you know, people trying to drive wedges in their locker rooms like we see the Warriors deal with, you know, protected from a not very large national media contingent attending these games you know, protected from the weight of expectations because they've never done it before. Now they're really starting to to feel it 
Uh, I could sense it in game four on behalf of them. And I think there should be a spark for Mike Budenholzer to kind of get them off on the right start in uh, in game five. Just as a point of clarification, you're talking, are you talking about Brogdon starting over Bled or starting over Miritich? Either way. I mean, Miritich was struggling too. Uh, I think that, you know, Bledsoe's minutes, he's effectively a backup after game four, right? I mean, he he got down to 20 minutes, I think, in game four. You could, you could tell that when they were trying to make their push, they didn't want him on the court. And there was actually some closing stretches earlier in the series where he wasn't closing the game for right. them either, I think, for the same reason. So, uh, uh, you know, I would be fine with benching Bledsoe. Uh, if you're worried about losing him, like you're going to, you know, like he's going to check out if, if you don't show confidence in him, then I would say, okay, just pull Miritich back out, go a little bit smaller, see if you can spread Toronto's starting lineup and, and put some pressure on Gasol to cover ground and do that kind of stuff. I'd be okay either way. Uh, do you have a preference there? I don't think at this point that Miritich, I mean, has done, he, he doesn't fit as well to me as Brogdon. I love Miritich, but I think Brogdon, Brogdon for Miritich is, is also like kind of politically an, an easier move to make. And then with Bledsoe, he's on thin, he would be thin, on thin ice with me, but also with Bled, you can do the, the mix of he starts, but he might not close. And then I, th- I think that's easier in this. You could say, hey, look, you know, Brogdon, George Hill, those guys are playing better than you in this game. We need to win it. As opposed to, oh, you're not starting. Like, I, I could imagine, I don't I don't know Bledsoe that well personally, but I could imagine that being easier to take where in later in a game rather than the beginning. But a couple of things I think are important in terms of the Bledsoe decision. So one is, he is the better defender on Kyle Lowry, but Lowry's had a couple of nice games this series, and in game one, Lowry was huge in the first quarter. Not all of that time was on Bledsoe, but some of it was. And so the the idea of him taking away something that is important for the Raptors, I, I do buy that logic, except that it hasn't been as rigidly true as I kind of thought it might be. Like, I came into this series expecting Lowry to be the bigger problem than Bledsoe. So far, I have been wrong. And so yeah, no, no doubt. He's been winning that matchup pretty consistently. And, yeah. uh, and well, again, so, like, if, if, if you start with Brogdon and then go with George Hill more, I mean, almost to this point on the, on the pecking order of Milwaukee's guards, I would say Bledsoe's third at this point yep, for me. Absolutely. And th- this to me is a pretty amazing stat. So last year, Milwaukee only, they didn't make it out of the first round. They lost that seven game series to the Celtics without Hayward and without Kyrie Irving and the Drew Bledsoe thing, as you talked about. Eric Bledsoe, has a worse true shooting percentage these playoffs than last year. He was at 51% last year. He's at 49% this year. And he's had some better games. You know, I, I thought that overall, you know, benefit of playing the Pistons in the first round and Boston wasn't the most consistent team defensively either. But I'm not saying he's been as bad in these playoffs. I absolutely do not think that he has been because his defense has been better and one, and he hasn't had to like to me he hasn't had to make sometimes the decisions. The it, it hasn't been as much on his shoulders due to the strength of this Bucks team, but that's concerning. And Toronto, such a smart defensive team in terms of their players, but also they're well coached. They've done an excellent job of using his limitations against not just him, but against this entire Bucks team. And that is incredibly hard to counter other than him just making shots. Look, the deeper you go into the playoffs, uh, the more it becomes a matter of who can expose whose weakest link, right? And I think it's completely fair to say that Bledsoe has been the weakest link for Milwaukee. I don't know if you saw what I tweeted the other night, but through four games of the Eastern Conference Finals, he's shooting four for 29, which is 13.8% from outside five feet. And he's not even finishing very well around the basket either. So, I mean, he's basically, you know, he's practically like a seven foot center, you know, the way he's shooting the basketball. 
uh, and they're treating him as such, and that's no good. And so uh, I don't think they owe him anything. I mean, at this point, um, you know, other than like very clear communication about why they're going to be making the move. But if they wanted to bench him, I think that he would have to accept it. He's got to realize it more than anybody how he's playing. Uh, and I know he's talked pretty openly about his anxiety issues and, uh, you know, putting too much pressure on himself and getting down on himself and feeling like he cost them that series against Boston. And I really respect him for his honesty and his candor and being open about that. Um, I think usually uh, the people who are like that understand when they're falling short of the mark before everybody else. And I, my guess is he's probably realizing how this thing is going for him right now. And, and they just need a jolt. I mean, if they don't do it and, and they run it out with the same lineup, I think basically what they're saying is we think that we can get into transition at home. And we think that our shooters are finally going to break through and have that type of game they had against Boston. Uh, you know, I think it was game four against Boston where they just shot the lights out and they finally got their shots to hit. But um, through four games against Toronto, they have yet to shoot better than 32% on three-pointers. They're below their season average on threes in all four games. And so that's a risky proposition. I mean, just to say, oh, snap your fingers and Ilyasova and Miritich are going to solve this or Brooke is going to have seven threes or, uh, you know, someone else is going to really, uh, you know, bring that three-point percentage up. That would make me nervous. And again, that would lead me back if I was Mike Budenholzer to decide now is the right time to make a lineup adjustment. Game fives are also incredibly important because of how it sets the table for the remainder of the series. Now, it is not destiny that a team that loses a game five, even the home team losing a game five is, is going to lose the series, but it puts so much onus on the Bucks to rebound. And Bledsoe, he can swing a game. He doesn't necessarily, if this isn't a circumstance of like, oh, if you play him 20 minutes, you're definitely going to lose or anything silly like that. But if it makes it harder for you to win, and I think that Toronto did more than hold serve. I mean, so did the Bucks. I mean, the Bucks winning the way that they did in games one and two made me swing harder in their direction. So I, I think if I were Budenholzer, what would make me uncomfortable is the idea that what if I'm wrong? You know, what if going home, and you talked about this a little bit, going home isn't enough. As you said, you know, like if, if Ilya Silva just doesn't figure everything out. And Milwaukee's offensive limitations are, you know, in terms of the process of it, getting good shots, I think that the Raptors are just going to keep getting more aggressive with Bledsoe. So if it starts out poorly, then it's going to be there. But remember also, the Bucks started out game one reasonably well, even with Bledsoe, Bledsoe not, or sorry, sorry, started out game four reasonably well, even without Bledsoe stuff. So it is, it's so hard because we're getting into these sample sizes where you don't want to make it all about those decisions, but it is a really important one. Oh, for sure. And I think, you know, a great comparison point here, just kind of big picture for the Bucks, is to this Raptors Cavaliers series from three years ago, Eastern Conference Finals. Remember, LeBron James famously after that series was tied 2-2 said, look, this is not an adverse situation and came out in game five and they, they blow the Raptors off the court, right? It was clear he was just kind of brushing them off his shoulder. He was not concerned at all. I think the Milwaukee Bucks are in a completely different mindset after that game four. You hear Boonholzer say, uh, you know, it's going to be uh, you know, a heck of a series. You know, he's already looking ahead to it going long. You you hear Middleton say, look, it's going to be a dogfight in game five. Uh, you just, you know, get their overall body language of a team that's like, oh, man, we're into some deeper water than we've been in before. And I think when you look at the Bucks, you know, big picture, the Raptors are the best team they've played in any playoffs during the Giannis era, right? I mean, if you look back at their opponents, 
uh, you know, I, I compare this year's or last year's Celtics to, to this year's Raptors, uh, or compare, you know, this year's Raptors to this year's Celtics, however you want to look at it. Like, I think this uh, Raptors team is pushing them in ways. Oh, I think that they're they significantly have. better. Right, I mean, exactly. And so that's even more reason for them to be a little bit staggered here and to be thinking and to be, you know, back on their heels. And so, uh, again, that would lead me to the conclusion that you need to be proactive, try to regain control of this series. Uh, you know, by, you know, putting out whoever you believe your best five is. And I just, frankly, to me, I don't see any way Bledsoe's in their best five. Like, unless he just completely has a miraculous turnaround, uh, you know, he, he's not one of their five best players right now. Staying on the Bledsoe note just for a brief second, and you don't want to get too deep into recency bias here because the Bucks aren't going to play the Raptors every game and opportunity cost is something very different. But before the playoffs started, I talked about the value for Bledsoe of certainty and that he signed that extension, signed a, you know, three, three new years on it. And it's about 18 a year, but the final year is, is only lightly guaranteed. So, you know, you could think of it as a two plus of, I think it's like a $4 million payment if it's not working out. And I think the Bucks, even if, you know, he ends up being a big, you know, ends up being a negative in this series, he still was so huge for them in the regular season. They were the number one team in the league during the regular season. I don't, I don't think it's a mistake, but I do think from Milwaukee's perspective, but I do think that it was a reminder of the value of risk mitigation here from Bledsoe, because while it's, you know, there's a lot of positives to point to for what he did this season for Milwaukee and especially on the defensive end, but, you know, offensively as well. And they had this remarkable year. There is an element that one I've wondered about of in terms of like, let's say theoretically they lose this series or he is similarly exposed against the Warriors in the NBA finals. I wonder what his free agent market would have been. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and if I'm Milwaukee, I don't necessarily second guess that decision. I think it was the right move at the time. He had a great season. He was a super crucial piece to lock in. I think if they didn't lock him up and he leaves, it's difficult to replace him. Uh, and they were going to be facing so many choices this summer that it was actually in their, their best interest to kind of limit the number of, of li- limit the downside potential, right? Because, like, in a worst-case scenario, he leaves, Middleton leaves, and they're paying through the nose for a guy like Brogdon. And now you're trying to sell Giannis on a future, you know, coming down the pike of, uh, you know, Brogdon and Lopez or whoever it might be around him. That doesn't sound very good. That sounds like a recipe for Giannis leaving in free agency in a few years, right? So I think that they they were feeling the pressure to keep pieces around uh, Giannis that he liked and that he trusted. And clearly that's who Bledsoe was during the regular season. Look, guys go through slumps. He's not the only scapegoat on this team. We can go through basically every single person on their roster besides Giannis and Middleton and say they didn't really step up in a big time way in game four. But it's really about what does this moment command? Um, and I think that Toronto has applied enough pressure here where it's time for Milwaukee to uh, to change course. Still plenty more to talk about with Ben Golliver, but first a message from betonline.ag. We're getting into late May, and you have amazing playoff action going on in the NBA and NHL playoffs. Every play, every possession, every moment is on the line. And there's only one place that has you covered, one place that we trust, and that is betonline.ag. Sign up today for a free account at betonline.ag and use that promo code PODCAST1 for your 50% welcome bonus. The Western Conference is done, but we do still have a fantastic Eastern Conference Finals, at least two games remaining. Hopefully there's a Game 7. I'd be really excited about that. And if you're interested in it, you can also do in-game wagering, which I think is a really fascinating angle on this, something I've dabbled in a little bit myself, actually done pretty well with that. If you think you have a feel of where a game is going 
midway through it. It can be a really fun thing to do. So don't sit on the sidelines anymore. Get in the action. And do not forget to use that promo code PODCAST1. So you can go to betonline.ag and use it, or you can text BETNOW, B-E-T-N-O-W, to 238-669 to receive that 50% welcome bonus from betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. also want to talk to you about Pluto TV. Pluto TV is the leading free streaming television service. You can watch over 100 TV channels and thousands of movies on demand, all completely free. And my favorite thing about Pluto TV is that beyond never asking you for a credit card, which is great enough, you don't even need to sign up to watch for free. That makes it the easy and completely legal way to watch your favorite TV shows and hit movies for free. You can download Pluto TV for free on all of your favorite devices today, including your phone, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, Smart TVs, PlayStation, and anywhere else you stream. So what are you waiting for? Never pay for TV again by downloading Pluto TV. To be clear, like I still have the Bucks in, as the favorite in this series. I, I think that, generally speaking, home teams going into a Game 5, you know, they have a huge advantage. It's basically a three-game series, and you have home court in two of those three games. That's even stronger than four out of seven. And the Bucks are an excellent team. Even, you know, it just making some of their guys making better shots. The, their bench got completely outplayed in game four. I don't expect that to continue moving Yeah, and their, their home court in Milwaukee is real, too. I mean, I was mm-hmm. there last week. It's not like the loudest building. You know, I mean, there's definitely louder places around the league. But it, just look at how Toronto's role players played, especially down the stretch of those games, right? I mean, those were the guys who were shrinking from the moments. Those were the guys who we were questioning I mean, even like Mark saw, I mean, it, it was like, oh, the story after game two is like, can you keep him on the court? Like, is he getting played off of, uh, you know, the court here? And they, their transition defense, I thought earlier in the series was not as good. And, and Milwaukee's getting easier stuff. Giannis's life was definitely easier. Uh, Pascal was more up and down. And then everybody besides Lowry fell off the place, uh, the face of the earth in game one in the fourth quarter. And Toronto was just a total mess. So uh, it's not just the average home court, right? Like Milwaukee's been really, really good at home all year. They've been great at home during the postseason. They were great at home in games one and two, at least after, you know, they kind of shook out of the slow start uh, in game one. So, yeah, there's no doubt, uh, you know, they're still in a good place here. Right. And I think what has led to some of the conversations that have happened since game four is just how surprising this was considering how dominant the Bucks were in games one and two. And that happens, you know, when a series really defies expectations, whether it's from the beginning or just in, in part of it, then you get that stuff. I mean, another example of that was after game one of Bucks Celtics, you know, the Boston running the Bucks as hard as they did, that was really a surprise to people. And so there were some overreactions in a, in a couple of different directions. And in a seven game series, that happens. I mean, I'm you know, it, and my default in this, I mean, I picked the Bucks in seven. I thought that the, I, I thought the Raptors were going to look a lot better than they did in games one and two. So it got, you know, closer to an equilibrium there. But I do think the, the other really interesting development that we should talk about in this was the adjustment that Nick Nurse made to make Kawhi the primary defender on Giannis. Because while Giannis has beasted, if we're going to call him perimeter players, this entire year, Kawhi Leonard is uncommonly strong, uncommonly skilled for a quote-unquote perimeter player. And beyond that, the Bucks have, you know, they have some force, they have plenty of floor spacing, but the Raptors are often having somebody else, you know, in the paint, having Kawhi on... Giannis has allowed Siakam to roam a little bit more, has, you know, Marcus Gasol is there sometimes. And I think that overall defensive shift has really made life harder on Giannis. He's good enough to overcome it and to, to have some good games, but I do think it's making life significantly harder on him. 
Well, you know how much I love Giannis, but he's not a perfect player, right? His handle isn't ideal. His vision and his targeting of his passes is not perfect. All of those things have improved over the last couple of years. There's no question. Uh, but I think that you can bother him by getting close underneath him if you're strong and you're disciplined and you can move your feet. And if you have good hands, you can force turnovers, as we saw in game three with Giannis committing. I think it was tying his career high and setting his postseason career high with eight turnovers. Uh, I actually love the idea of having, you know, your best perimeter defensive player guarding Giannis as tightly as possible and then having your roaming guy behind him, you know, ready to provide help. When he was going one-on-one against uh, Siakam at times in this series, Siakam's just like too tall. I mean, he's almost like stood up, you know, he's too vertical. And Giannis is able to turn the corner on him, burst past him, and use his length to finish in ways where I think Siakam is accustomed to be able to recover and block shots or recover and really strongly contest layups. And Giannis, that just doesn't really affect him when he's moving off the dribble. You're better off trying to get underneath him, crowd him, uh, you know, make him uh, handle the ball in traffic. And then that's when you're going to start to to force him to make decisions more quickly than he wants to. And you're going to force him into situations where you might be able to strip him and, and those kinds of things. So if we looked ahead to like the finals, for example, I would start with Iguodala on Giannis and I would just, you know, try to follow that same formula. Just hope his strength is enough. Try to use those, you know, those great hands as Iguodala, you know, profanely said on the national TV broadcast, trying to like poke the ball free, just get up underneath him, uh, bother him and harass him as much as possible with Draymond there uh, behind to play cleanup. Uh, that's how I would handle it personally. That's at least how I would start. Uh, and see how it works out. Now, in terms of Nurse waiting to deploy that, it was interesting. I kind of thought he might go to it a little bit earlier, but he wound up, I think maybe just because game two got away from them, it wound up working out great because I think Milwaukee, uh, they swelled a little bit, right? They thought, hey, we're in control of this series. We've got a real chance to finish this off in five. I know the people in the building in Milwaukee were even thinking, hey, this could be a sweep or we're, we're definitely going to, uh, you know, start looking ahead to the, uh, the the finals. I'm not saying the players were doing that, but just the fan base and sort of the people around the arena kind of had that sensation after such a big game two victory. So the timing of that, of that shift by Nick Nurse wound up, you know, playing out brilliantly. Uh, and Kawhi being up to the task despite his injury has been really, really impressive. I mean, he, he was uh, commanding, I thought, in game three. And then again in game four, uh, he managed his energy very, very intelligently. And uh, for him, I think that's kind of a signature back-to-back performance in this postseason. He's had some great moments, obviously the game-winning shot and everything like that. But, uh, you know, locking down the MVP and, and having him look as discompopulated as he did in game three, it's no easy task. And he deserves a lot of credit. Kawhi also has a penchant for big defensive plays, you know, like that. He had that crazy kind of double steal late in game three that I thought really swung the game where he he popped it away from, I believe it was Middleton and then stole it from Brogdon. I think they listed it as a single play because Brogdon never fully recovered it, but he can do that and get those finishes. Also had that sneaky lefty dunk on Giannis kind of quick caught him in game four. And Kawhi games definitely have a different feel, and there are times when it's it's a little bit less fun, let's say, offensively, but it can be effective, and then defensively, he's just an absolute monster. And Kawhi has, I mean, I've been fascinated with him basically his entire career, and part of it is because not only his career trajectory, but also the way he plays is so fundamentally different from the other great players. And so sometimes that makes it harder to appreciate because 
he's not, let's say, as watchable offensively as Curry. And then defensively now, to me, he's not the same player that he was when he won Defensive Player of the Year. And I mean, there was some outrage. We were were recording this on Wednesday. The all-defensive teams came out and Kawhi was not on it. I don't think during as a regular season award that he should have been. There were a lot of great forwards this year. And it's not who are the best defenders. It's who was the, who were the best defenders of this year. Those are two very different questions. And I didn't have Kawhi on my team, so I can't complain about him not being on the league thing. It's also a weakness of giving out the awards after so much of the playoffs is that you get a lot of information that was not available when the voters voted. But Kawhi, just, just a fascinating player. And I've been thinking a lot about during these playoffs about how that squares up with his big decision because he has a lot on the table. It's not necessarily just about championship contention or what city he wants to live in, you know, potentially going back to Southern California. But who does he want around him? What kind of coaching philosophy does he want to deal with? Is there a specific coaching personality that he wants to have? And because he's never had this opportunity, basically all we've gotten from Kawhi was he, you know, finessed the system with San Antonio to keep a low cap hold and then sign the offer we all expected him to sign. And now he, the, the world is his oyster. And I don't know his thinking well enough to know where this is going. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So first of all, the defensive, uh, the all defensive teams, I agree with you 100%. He did not deserve it. Look, if you're going to, Load manage, voters should vote manage, okay? If you're going to be missing that much time, I don't think you get to be uh, in this conversation for season-long awards. That's just, you know, par for the course. It's not about your peak moments. It's about the whole body of work. You're also mentioning uh, how you don't think his defense is maybe where it was earlier in his career. And this is a pretty crazy uh, number. You know, during his finals MVP season, you know, with the Spurs 2014, his usage rate was 19, right? This year during the post, and that's during the playoffs. This year during the playoffs, his usage rate is 33, right? So, I mean, that gap is gigantic. Um, and that, that probably doesn't surprise people who've watched his career because he's being used in a totally different way by Toronto. Uh, but that's a huge gap. And that explains, I think, you know, how much energy does any player have left over when they're having a usage rate of 33 on offense? Uh, that's a tough ask, even for a guy who's multiple time defensive player of the year. Now, in terms of what does Kawhi want, I think this year has been instructive, right? Because we've seen Toronto basically cater to him as much as they possibly could. And honestly, I think there's some parallels between how Toronto has catered to Kawhi and how the Warriors have catered to Kevin Durant, right? Because we're seeing how different Golden State's offense looks when Durant's not out there. And we're also hearing repeatedly from everybody within the Warriors camp about how Kevin's the best basketball player on earth and how they wouldn't be there without him and everything like that. I mean, it's clear they're sort of bending over backwards to allowing him to succeed on his own terms. And I think that really happened in Toronto, too. I mean, you look at in terms of his offense. I mean, obviously, uh, the highest usage rate uh, of his career, you know, by a long shot, especially in the playoffs. You look at his numbers, you know, his career highs across the board. You look at how many games they rested him. I mean, he's out for 22 games during the regular season. They have a very careful plan. Uh, with their medical staff to sort of, you know, ramp him up as they got closer to the postseason. Every time they had a big shot in a big moment, didn't Kawhi take it? Felt like it. I mean, so it really did seem to me like if if Toronto had gotten any indication of how Kawhi wanted to play, uh, I think we should assume that they've constructed things to fit that recipe to try to keep him as happy as possible. So if we're trying to forecast going forward, it's almost like, well, what other organizations are able to offer him similar things, but maybe with better personnel, right? Because it's clear he wants to be the number one guy because that's what he's been. It's clear he wants to have the ball and 
and to be viewed as that alpha guy late in games because that's what it's been. Uh, you know, it's clear that he wants to uh, not have to play 40 minutes every single night, night in and night out. But once it comes to the playoffs, he's willing to kind of ramp up. I mean, I think he's given us those tells and those indications. And, uh, you know, I think you can imagine a team like the Clippers for sure checking off a lot of those boxes. Uh, but you can also see the Raptors being able to make that exact same pitch to him next year with the added benefit of saying, look, you know how it worked out because we've already been doing it for a year together. And you know what other team can't make that? The Lakers. Right. And nor, I mean, look, they should not be in any of these conversations. And look, I think Magic Johnson exposed that more than anything. Look, people are going to point at Rob Polinka and say, oh, man, he's a backstabber, this and that. And like, I'm sure there's internal drama. But the real takeaway from Magic's uh, uh, big you know, interview with Stephen A. Smith is that this is just a dysfunctional organization, period, that does not have its stuff together, that is run by people who are, you know, they basically have a rookie or a novice owner, a rookie or a novice GM. Uh, they have a brand new coach who has no relationship with LeBron James. So good luck there. And then they've got a bunch of un- untested young pieces around LeBron uh, who were not able to string together, you know, three straight, you know, good months of basketball last year. Why in the world would anyone who has choices, who has good choices, decide to choose the Los Angeles Lakers in free agency? It is beyond me. And I think unless you have these huge aspirations of, you know, Hollywood life, uh, you know, becoming a billionaire like LeBron, that's basically the only argument I could make on behalf of the Lakers. And the problem for that is LeBron's there, too. So if you want to do that, you're still going to be riding shotgun to him, even if you're Kawhi Leonard uh, and even if you're Kevin Durant, right? So uh, I don't know. I mean, I, the Lakers have had a really, really uh, rough month. I don't want to be piling that much more dirt on their grave than I probably already did here over the last 90 seconds. Uh, but I would just say, like, if you're stacking things up for what most free agents look for uh, when it comes time to make their decision, uh, the Lakers are not doing so hot. And there's definitely better places for t- for guys to land. I've harped on the Lakers foibles so much in various platforms that I don't want to do it too much here. But the only point that I want to that I want to emphasize is that this is also a very unusual offseason in that there are so many options for max caliber players. This is not a circumstance where player X is looking at three teams. One of them is the Lakers. One of them is some, you know, team in a small market that is probably better run, but is just, you know, has those limitations. And then maybe their current team, you know, like that sort of a circumstance can happen in various iterations. That is not this year. You have the Clippers who look like they have things really together from a from an organizational standpoint. And how incredible is that sentence? Then you have all of these guys' prior teams and uh, numerous other ones. You know, like Dallas is a really interesting situation. If I were a free agent, unless, you know, City was so much more important, I would be way more interested in playing with Luka and Porzingis than what this Lakers team has put together. And Well, and on top of that, aren't the Knicks above the Lakers now? I mean, because at least the 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 runway is clear. You could be the man. You can have your own show. You're in your own um, market. You know, it's a bigger market, probably you know, globally, uh, even than L.A. would be. And I guess you you know you have a pretty well respected coach there. The front office hasn't made its own major mistakes yet. You know, they've taken some flack for some moves, but it's not like it's Phil Jackson. You know, three years deep into his tenure, 
Like, if I'm power ranking destinations, like, uh, this is kind of like damning with fame praise, but well, the, the, the Knicks are even better than the Lakers, too. The reason why I have the Knicks over the Lakers, I think there are a lot of similarities between those situations, and wow, is that a big statement in terms of the Lakers. But what the Knicks have that is so persuasive and powerful, and we've seen this in NBA history, is that you don't have the second guy locked in already. You're not walking into a LeBron James situation. And even if it ends up that, let's just pick Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, play together on the Knicks, they're choosing that together. That's very different from going to somebody else's team. And especially when that guy is the best player of his generation, LeBron James. So that is, and LeBron teams play a specific way and have all these certain elements that the players all know about. Like this is not breaking any new ground for them and that they're the ones making this decision. So I can imagine almost any two combination like players saying, "Well, I'd rather I'd rather have us come together than necessarily go to, to go to be on LeBron." And that's why I would have the Knicks as a more persuasive one, and also why they can do some interesting things here in terms of you know, like let's say for whatever reason they get one of the like unambiguous max players. Well, I mean they could probably get somebody like Kemba, and Kemba plus KD is a really good foundation. You can do a lot with that, and the Knicks also have. I would say because of the flexibility they have, they don't have the timeline issues that the Lakers do. Now, the Lakers' timeline issues can be resolved by trading some of their young dudes, but that's still something, if you're a free agent, that you have to sit sit there and figure it out because there's a lot of uncertainty with the Lakers because they haven't done those consolidation clarification moves yet. And it's possible that some of them will happen before July 1st, July 4th, whatever date we're talking about here. But some of them probably won't, especially the the weird and hopefully fine resolution of what happens with Brandon Ingram. I mean, that's such a complicated situation. Lonzo Ball is a complicated situation that... I like some of what they have, and I think some of it could fit together pretty well, but that's different than the Knicks. Yeah, I mean, the Lakers' assets, I mean, I think in, from trade value perspective, Lonzo and Ingram have got to be basically as low as they've ever been, right? And I think that's part of the reason why Polinka was so excited to get that number four pick, because that's probably the best thing he's got to put into a deal right now, given Ingram's health. You could definitely make a strong argument that Ingram is better than that number four pick, if everything's up and going, but it's not just this blood clot thing with Ingram. He's had health issues, you know, basically throughout his entire career. I think the last two years he's had issues. So, um, yeah, it's a complicated scenario, but I also think there's just, even if you don't dig into all that nitty gritty, right. And you just look at the Lakers and you say, do you want to take on all this drama and all these questions? You want to deal with it the first time or first uh, year head coach there in Vogel. Do you want to be in LeBron's shadow? Do you want to be, hearing about daily or weekly updates of uh, the palace intrigue and you know this person doesn't like this person there's too many cooks in the kitchen all these kinds of reports it's just been non-stop for the lakers here uh, essentially since lebron's got there and even before that you know and they had their you know different phases of dysfunction sort of pre-lebron and, and post-lebron i just to me that's just all seems like a total turnoff you know and uh, especially for a guy like Kawhi, where he's been low maintenance or uh, you know low key his entire career, it just seems like such a clash. Yeah, I think that's fair. And the Lakers' assets to me are significantly better than the Knicks if we're talking about like theoretically an AD trade or something like that. But if you're a free agent, you know you're combining. They don't have that. That's not a bird in the hand yet for them, and and might not ever be. You know, so that that's a real challenge, and that's also an impetus for the Lakers theoretically to get a trade done sooner rather than later even if they're trading some of these guys low end, is that if they're trying to make it a three-person thing, I think that's a lot easier to do if you have the second one in tow before 
July 1st or whenever. We should talk. Hey, before, you, well, real quick, ahead. I want to ask you, you mentioned AD. I want to ask you this question. Did it bother you the way the Pelicans kind of came out of the draft lottery with their message of being like, hey, look, you know, Zion's actually going to be making AD think, you know, should he stay here? This is going to be a game changer. This could be the thing that keeps Anthony Davis in New Orleans. I mean, they were really pushing that message pretty hard. And I think you could argue, okay, well, it's just uh, posturing, right? They're just trying to get everybody to realize that it's not a, they're not being held hostage. They're, they're trying to have a real negotiation here and, and gin up a, a good uh, bidding war for AD services where uh, they're not just, you know, forced to, to move him like, say, Minnesota was forced to move Jimmy Butler, uh, you know, about, you know, what, 10 months ago. It bothered me. And, and I'll say, I don't know if you agree or not, but it bothered me from the standpoint of guys like Zion expect to be the franchise face. They expect to be catered to uh, as the number one pick, as a hyped guy. Um, you know, it just that's kind of you know par for the course in the NBA. When you're a young player on a team that didn't make the playoffs, uh, you know, usually that thing is in your mold. You're the last player introduced during introductions. Uh, you're on the the front uh, front of the media guide. You know, all those kinds of things. And for his, you know potentially his tenure in new orleans to start with like oh wow you're going to be able to save anthony davis and like fix all these uh you know past mistakes and all this past baggage to me that was kind of a mistake it's not about what zion can do for ad i really think it's about what ad can do for zion because zion's going to be there for seven to nine years uh he's going to have the potential to be you know a top 10 nba player uh he's not going to be able to hold the franchise over a barrel like ad has over these last couple of years at least not until he is in his second contract and so from that standpoint, I just thought the framing was off and it would have rubbed me the wrong way if I was, uh, you know, in Zion's camp, so to speak. I think the end of what you said explained the beginning. Zion is, doesn't have a lot of agency in this process for a long time. And all of this will be water under the bridge so long after. And I'm not a big believer in, you know, in this sort of a circumstance, especially when it's before the first season in terms of starting a relationship off with the wrong foot, especially because the Pelicans, if they want to, can explain this away with, we have to say this publicly because we need teams to believe that we're that we could keep Anthony Davis. And whether they believe it or not, this is what they have to say. And yeah, that's the best that's the best explanation is like, look, we have to project strength in public to make the best possible offer. We all know we're going to trade him. Eventually, we're going to trade him. I was just nervous that they were they were so passionate and so gleeful in the aftermath of that draft lottery drawing. It made me wonder if they were really buying that, like if they were just all in on this idea of like Zion's going to be the the magnet that keeps Anthony Davis there. And to me, going down that road again after everything of the last six months would be a big mistake. I think it would be a mistake, too, unless they have some intel to think that Anthony Davis might come back. The the interesting question that I haven't fully grappled with yet, and I enjoy these questions, is how AD's market changes if they hold on to him longer than people expect, because then you start to get into more of the argument about it's a future play rather than a present play. Because Anthony Davis, sure, having him for two playoffs is better than one, and having him for a full regular season in playoffs is better than having him for a partial regular season in playoffs. So that is a factor in play here. But depending on the team, it, it might be a little bit different. And and so maybe they think that there is this path and they could that they can do it together. I think it's a really risky thing. You know, the idea that, 
because losing him for nothing is catastrophic. When you think about even the low-end offers that should be in play here, that would be the foundation, along with Zion, of the team for the future. And whether exactly, that's so, what I mean. Yeah, like I you mean, can't you can't be in a situation where AD walks next summer because you were hoping that Zion was going to be able to keep him around. And that's what I mean. Well, what and can exactly AD do? because they're not a Kevin Durant situation. You know, this is not Oklahoma City where they were. I mean, to me, Oklahoma City should have won the championship in 2016, and so they they had that on the table. And so even if they thought there was an outside chance that Kevin Durant was going to leave. First of all, the odds of that were very different because he hadn't demanded a trade Anthony Davis has. But think about that as being, that's how good you have to be and how good the situation has to be to not trade somebody who could leave. And this isn't that. This isn't that at all. I mean, the Pelicans, yes, they dealt with injury issues and they didn't have Zion and all this stuff, but they missed the playoffs. You know, they were bad enough this past year, Even I mean, and, and the AD drama fueled it and about a bunch of other things, that they were able to get Zion with their own pick, even with the lottery reform and everything like that. So yeah, I agree with you that the only way that this changes is if he says, I'm open to staying or something stronger than that. Like, I think I might. And I don't think he's going to do that because he can end up in a situation that he likes better, you know, whether that's a better team, city, whatever it is. And so, yeah, I think that's a big thing there. Still more to talk about with Ben Golliver, but first message from Yahoo Daily Fantasy. It is one of the best times of year to be a sports fan. NBA and NHL playoffs are really in crunch time, and on top of that, baseball and the PGA are really starting to pick up. If you want to get closer to the action, Yahoo Daily Fantasy is for you. They offer single-day and week-long contests. You can pick a new team every day. And also, Yahoo Daily Fantasy has the lowest management fees across the industry. So don't play with the other sites that charge high fees just to play. Yahoo's lower fees mean more prizes for you, the players, to win. To get started, go to yahoo.com slash dailyfantasy and find a contest that's right for you. You can try a 50-50 contest where the top half of the field wins, or you can try Yahoo's innovative quick match feature where they will pair you with another player of your skill level. You can play a quick match contest for free or for cash, but the best part is there is no management fee, so you will keep 100% of your winnings. Or you can play for larger prizes and bigger bragging rights in guaranteed prize pool contests. No matter what you want to try, use the promo code POD25 for $25 in free play when you make your first deposit. So again, you go to yahoo.com slash dailyfantasy. Use that POD25 promo code for $25 in free play when you make your first deposit. And the sooner you get to playing, the sooner you can get to winning. Also have a message from TrueCar. Every car comes with its share of stories. That ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up a first date. The luxury package you got after a big promotion or the mileage you saved after riding your bike all summer. While you cannot put a price tag on your stories, now with TrueCar, you can at least find out what your car is worth when it's time to sell or trade it in. Just go to TrueCar, simply enter your license plate number, and watch how your car's details pop up. Then answer a few questions. Navigation and moonroof? Watch as they bump up your value. High mileage? You already knew it was going to cost you, but now you know how much it dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. Once you are finished, you will get a true cash offer sent in minutes that you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you are ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out TrueCar today. True cash offer not available in all areas. Also have a message from CBS Sports HQ. Do you miss when sports networks cover just the news and highlights without the yelling and fake debates? I know I do. That's why I watch CBS Sports HQ. 
It is the free 24-hour sports network that is built for fans like you and me. You can get tons of highlights, analysis, and instant game reactions, everything that matters about the game, without diving into political and social issues like on other sports networks. And if you enjoy placing some bets or competing against your friends in the Fantasy League, their experts are always dishing out top picks and advice. So check out CBS Sports HQ. It is always on and always free. No need to pay a subscription fee or have an expensive cable package. Just download the CBS Sports app on your phone, Fire TV, Roku, or Apple TV to start watching today. We, we don't need to talk about the Western Conference too much, but how I want to frame this is, so my offseason preview for the Blazers just came out at The Athletic, and... The Warriors part of this will get attention, and I think will be will be seen through the prism of what happens in the NBA Finals because it's coming in a week. But from the Blazers' standpoint, I think what this series did was it was a reminder that there is a caste system is the phrase I used in the in the piece in the NBA, and that's basically that that's not because it's unfair or anything like that. It's just that the best of the best are so damn good, and the Blazers aren't at that level, and they're not going to be at that level. And how management, ownership plus front office, interprets that is fascinating to me. Yeah, I mean, I would just say it was like a ladder, right? I mean, the the rungs between, uh, you know, Golden State's rung and Houston's rung, you know, that was a clear step. And then you go down another clear step, and that's sort of where Portland was. They had a dream season. I don't think that their season should at all be viewed through this Golden State lens. And you look at the Warriors and some of these teams that they've beaten, that they've humiliated, that they've humbled along the way whether it's some of the Cavaliers teams, the Rockets teams from the last couple of years, Portland just doesn't stack up with those teams. And so that's why if you're trying to say, you know, in the backlash, you know, locally or even nationally about, oh, Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum, they fell apart and all that. It's like, come on, guys. Like, look at some of the people who are out there around them. Uh, There was definitely an imbalanced rosters. They were struggling to put together quality five-man groups. I mean, Myers Leonard had the two best games of his life back-to-back, but he's still giving away almost as many points defensively as he was scoring offensively, right? So that just shows some of the challenges that they were dealing with. Cantor was unbelievable for them the first two series, and, you know, pretty predictably, uh, he was not much of a factor in the Western Conference Finals. And so, I, I I picked uh, Golden State in five in that series. I wasn't shocked to see it, uh, you know, be done in four. Portland put up a, a reasonably good fight. I think that they were talking about playing with pride at multiple points during the series. I definitely think they did that. Uh, I think that the Blazers were right to reward Terry Stotts with a, a contract extension. I think it's been a great fit there personality-wise. Uh, and his relationship with Damian Lillard has sort of, uh, I guess, powered this entire thing. Uh, and we also, by the way, should give them a lot of credit for how well they played in that second round series with Denver, which was not only entertaining, but very, very hard fought, intense contrast of styles, contrast of superstars. They got out a game seven on the road. Uh, th- that was pretty big time. So to me, it was like, if you're a, a Blazers fan, that should be an A plus season. When you're looking at preseason expectations, uh, Nurkic going down and everything else like that. And your A plus is just not the same as Golden State's A plus. You know, Golden State's A plus is, uh, 16 and one through the playoffs and winning a title and, uh, you know, chasing LeBron out of Cleveland, right? And, and so, uh, that's why I just think that these two, these teams are just on completely different levels. I like your analogy there with the, the cast system. I mean, it, there's no doubt. Uh, and the biggest di- difference maker I thought in that series, other than Curry, because I think he's playing at such a high level here the last six or seven games, he's a totally different player than he was earlier in the playoffs where he was struggling with foul trouble, his shot, uh, going through slumps. Um, 
and then also dealing with that finger injury, which I think bothered him a little bit at various points, uh, was Draymond. I mean, Draymond, the last two games, game three and four in Portland, his feel of when to take over, his willingness to push the tempo, his ability to just kind of punk Portland's front line, for lack of a better phrase, over and over and over again was incredible. And he put his body into fast forward, man. He was he was moving like 50 percent faster, it felt like, than just about everybody else on the court. And he did just such a brilliant job of picking his spots about when to do it, uh, countering Portland's runs with kind of runs of his own making, putting his head down and going to the basket in transition, which we actually don't see very often from him to be able to get to the free throw line and, and to scrap some points out that way, as opposed to looking to pass first. I just thought it was was brilliant. And of course, the defensive stuff, I mean, you could put together like a five hour long YouTube highlight reel of his defensive highlights uh, from this uh, playoff run in general, but then especially uh, in games three and four. And I think by the end of the series, Draymond had that like the natural disaster effect upon the Blazers. If you, you want to call him a hurricane or a tornado or whatever, everything else. I mean, he rolled through town. He took all of the energy of the building. He sopped it all up. He left kind of like destruction in his waist. And then he did it again in game four. And when he came back for game four, I just felt like you could tell that he had robbed uh, the Blazers of their confidence, right? Their self-belief. Are you really going to be able to hold off another uh, Golden State second half run? Are you really going to be able to find answers to Curry and Draymond? And I think by the end of that series, uh, you know, Portland basically was just, you know, empty handed. They didn't know what else to do. Uh, and they were overwhelmed and they were, uh, you know, ready to go home. And uh, I, that's not too surprising. I mean, the level that he was playing at uh, it, for a guy who's definitely, to me, going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. I think it was one of the signature stretches of his uh, his entire career. It absolutely was for me. And I thought Draymond was the best player in that series because of what he did defensively. I mean, Portland just couldn't get what they were. You know, think about the difference between the Nuggets series and the Warriors series. And when you consider that the fallback that we would often have when you're talking about the difference between those two opponents is defensive personnel, but those arguments started getting stripped away when all of the other good defenders started getting hurt. You know, Kevin Durant didn't play at all in that series. Andre Guadalla basically didn't play in the second half of that series. He was limited in game three, didn't play at all in game four. And so they started going to other things, you know, Damian Jones starting game three, as crazy as that was. And yeah, they, they there were some, some issues there, to be sure. But Draymond was able to keep them afloat on that end and then was more of an offensive positive than he has been in a long time. And a lot of that was self-created. And that was really different because in, you know, let's say the end of game two, when they were going to the Curry-Draymond pick and roll. Yeah, that's that's driven by Steph Curry. Steph Curry was, the attention that he's drawing is opening that stuff up for Draymond. But Draymond, with those drives in semi-transition or creating transition out of thin air, he was cultivating and creating more offensive value than I've really ever seen from him. And that was important. And I thought that helped give the Warriors something to turn to offensively when other things weren't working. And it was extremely important, not in terms of necessarily them winning the series, but in terms of it being as quick as it was. Yeah, for sure. And it also got me just kind of thinking about like, can we imagine this point forward battle between Draymond and Giannis potentially in the finals where uh, do both teams decide that it's in their best interest to play a little bit faster and get up and down a little bit? I mean, I would love to just see that from an aesthetic standpoint, because that was the most fun part of the series to me. I mean, 
Steph draining some of these three-pointers and working really hard off the ball. It's a thing of beauty to watch. But there's nothing quite like Draymond, you know, getting into sixth gear in the open court. And, you know, you you don't know exactly what's going to happen because he's so unpredictable from, like, the three-point line and in as he's going downhill. But uh, he, he made great reads. I remember, you know, after game three, Steve Kerr was praising his decision-making, how he only had two turnovers in that first triple-double game. And that was right on the money because he was making decisions at an unbelievably fast pace. Um, and, you know, he, he could have put himself in situations where it would have been very easy to charge or uh, things of that nature. And he, he did a great job avoiding it. And it was just too much for Portland. They had no answer. Uh, but, you know, kind of tying that off, though, it wasn't super surprising. Like before the series, if you're search, like, searching uh, for matchup advantages and you're looking at Portland's front line and you're comparing that to Draymond and even Looney, who I think has been, uh, you know, an underrated element of this 5-0 and run uh, since Kevin Durant went down injured. Uh, you know, it was just such a huge, just one-sided, lopsided advantage for Golden State's front line. Yeah, that, and, and I'm happy you brought up Looney. I've, I've written about the Warriors so much for the Athletic that I, I had, didn't think of bringing him up, but I absolutely should. But let's transition into uh, the other really fascinating thing that you've done over the last couple of weeks, which is being in the room for the draft lottery and what a draft lottery it must have been to be in the room. Yeah, it was my first time doing it. I think I picked the right one. I mean, that was part of the reason why I was so excited to do it. Um, you know, I've read the stories for years about what it's like, but I kind of wanted to see it for myself. And I knew just with the Zion factor, I think all the emotions were going to be that much higher. So, uh, you know, just being down there, I mean, they take you down to the dungeon, they rob you of all your electronics, and, you know, you're just kind of poking around, seeing how the machine works, seeing the, the case of the, the lottery ping pong balls. You know, hearing stories about everyone's lucky charms and what they were doing. You know, one executive spent the whole morning lighting candles in his hotel room for good luck. Another one said he was praying the whole time. Uh, the Grizzlies, uh, you know, new vice president of basketball operations. He had an engraved watch from his mother who, who recently died from cancer. That was his good luck charm. Um, Alvin Gentry, as everybody knows, was wearing that tie that was given to him uh, by the uh, by David Griffin from the former Cavaliers executive who had won that uh, worn that same tie to win multiple lotteries. Uh, you know, the, the Andrew Wiggins and Kyrie Irving and Anthony Bennett lotteries. So uh, there was a lot of uh, you know people trying to get on the good side of the basketball gods. Uh, but the actual drawing itself is just such a flat and uh, professional and, uh, you know, kind of almost intentionally boring uh process where they you know they have a certain number of seconds that they spin the balls they call the number out and to have that boring process kind of punctuated with Alvin Gentry just jumping out of his chair swearing out you know swearing f yeah and going around and trying to get high fives from some of these other representatives who were obviously crestfallen because they hadn't won the uh the lottery it was just really a sight to behold well and something that's fundamentally different in the room than it is on the way that that it's produced for television is that the swings are so much more dramatic it isn't you know you see the the envelope come up and so you understand oh this team's moving into the top or this team moved back or anything like that you know certain things like you you talked about i think you're th- in in on twitter or in your piece about tommy shepherd like running through the running through the scenarios that were in play but there's so much more at stake in a much shorter like more dramatic even though it's so weird period of time and i'm sure that was crazy too oh yeah so when after they got to that third number i you, they have a packet that has all of the combinations on it right so you can kind of page through that packet to figure out who's left in terms of who that fourth number is going to be and there's only a 10 second window to do that paging so during that window i was sitting there thinking like oh my god like the wizards have multiple combinations and they wound up having 
I think three of the 11 combinations necessary uh, once the first three balls were picked to, to be able to get the number one pick in Zion. And I'm just sitting there thinking like, man, how different would the Wizards organization be if they haven't? So all those scenarios are going through your head. I think Phoenix had one uh, possibility. Cleveland had one possibility. Chicago had one possibility. And then New Orleans actually had all the rest of the combinations. And so by the time you're starting to, to do that mental dance of like which one of these teams is going to do it, uh, they call it out. And, you know, within like five seconds, uh, because people are tracking this so carefully, it became clear it was going to be New Orleans. Uh, they confirm it from the podium. And Alvin, I mean, he really did look like he had won the real lottery. And when you start to think about like the stakes for their franchise, it's almost better to win Zion than it would be to win like Megabucks, right? Like, because of like, what's going to help you win basketball games more? Uh, and that's how he reacted. It was so funny too, because they were, once the drawing is over, they actually turn a TV on so you can watch the televised version of it. And Alvin is sitting there nervous, worried that something is going to change and that they're going to like rob him of this number one pick that he's, uh, he's won, right? And of course, that's like this completely irrational thought. Uh, but, you know, put yourself in his shoes. You'd be thinking the same thing. Like, you just won the lottery. You don't want to take it away from you. You want to make sure you can cash your ticket. And so that was just kind of hilarious. I mean, he was pacing around. I mean, he was, like, providing, like, real-time commentary as they were going through the, the different draft order uh, announcements. Uh, you know, just his his anticipation was rising. I think the funniest moment, though, of the whole thing was uh, early in the in the in the draft lottery re- reveal. Woj made some sort of a comment about how, like, oh, the Pelicans have moved up, uh, and you know they're interested in trading Anthony Davis. And Gentry like scowled, like he was like obviously upset, like, oh, don't try to like ruin our night by like talking about Anthony Davis trades, right? And then as it went a little bit deeper, uh, Woj like doubled back and was like, well, you know, if they win the number one pick, they could potentially use that as a way to try to keep Anthony Davis and like form a superstar tandem and Gentry just yelled out thank you and and because he like, he felt like the media was uh you know finally kind of giving them a little bit of respect after you know what you know four months of trade rumors that kind of ruined their season and it was hilarious because everybody in the room laughed when Gentry said thank you including Rob Palinka. And so you just kind of like imagine this, you know, these two guys are almost like on opposite sides of these trade rumors for what, three or four straight months where both their teams were clearly impacted by that talk. And like here they are just kind of laughing about the the possible implications of the Zion draft pick on like the future of Anthony Davis. And you can sh- be sure like Palinka's thinking in the back of his mind, like, oh, I still want to trade for Anthony Davis. Like I just got the number four pick. Like maybe we're going to be able to like get back into the mix here. And so just having those kinds of scenes is very unique. And, you know, so often people don't want to discuss this stuff on the record, but you know, when you're in there in that environment, everything is so genuine. It's all off the cuff. It's all very natural in terms of what people are experiencing in that moment. And so it was just kind of hilarious to see that back and forth between, you know, two of you know, the central players of lottery night and those executives, but also with Woj, who's obviously been reporting on all of it and not realizing that's happening when he's upstairs doing the TV show. That's fantastic. And also Woj has relationships with all those people too. So I, I think that's pretty funny, but he doesn't know what's going on and everything else there. And talking about it in the way that you did made me think about something that I hadn't really put together in in this way before now, which is the journey that Alvin Gentry has been on over the last six months. So Pel- or let's, let's call it a year. A year ago, the Pelicans are riding high. They've beaten, they swept out the, the Portland Trailblazers. And yeah, they lost to the Warriors pretty quickly. But still, I mean, I think they walked out of that year feeling great. 
then the wheels come completely off the wagon in New Orleans. You have AD demanding a trade. Gentry, I mean, he very well could have thought that he would get fired. And then when you you always wonder with, with his age and with his experience whether there was going to be another head job in his future. Then they hire an ally in David Griffin, somebody that Alvin Gentry knows and who really likes Alvin Gentry. And then they get Zion. And now you have all the stuff from Gail Benson. They they're, have all the hallmarks of a well-run, well-funded organization, which is fantastic for them. And so think about the swing that he's gone through from potentially getting fired and being scapegoated for things that were largely out of his control to now, you know, he's not in the catbird seat forever, but he has a much better opportunity. Oh, no question. And like in that in that room, he was holding his head in shock. He could not wipe the smile off his face. He was holding court with reporters talking for probably 20 minutes of the time period, uh, you know, giving us like his full thoughts on Zion Williamson. And most of the teams, they try to play it close to the vest, right? Like they pretend, oh, you know, we don't know who we're going to draft and all that. But he's going on and on about Zion's like franchise changing potential, uh, how much he enjoyed watching him even as a high schooler, uh, you know, just from uh, their ties to the Carolinas. And so it, it was, I mean, he was living that experience in front of everybody. Like there was no, uh, no poker face whatsoever. And I think he even said at one point, like, look, we've been through a lot this year. This has been a really, really rough ride and what a payoff for him. And, you know, the, the flip side of that is there's a lot of people in that room who have been through rough rides, like the Wizards we mentioned earlier, Tommy Shepard. He's an interim executive. He doesn't know what his future is going to be. Ernie Grunfeld just got fired. They strike out, you know, the next week uh, on Tim Connolly. Uh, so that whole thing is in flux. They're j- dealing with the John Wall injury and contract, which is probably going to wreck their next three seasons. So they're having a tough time. The Cavaliers, the Bulls. I mean, there's a lot of people in that room who've had a really rough go at it. And they're all forced to sort of endure Gentry's happiness, knowing that they have their own pain, right? And it's just a, it's a one of a kind place. There's nothing that I can think of, uh, you know, to compare it to. I mean, it's almost like you know somebody's like cheering at a funeral, right? I mean, because one guy's really happy and everybody else is in mourning. I mean, that was sort of the the feel or the vibe in that room. Yeah, and, and it, there's a parallel that does not exist other places in the NBA because everybody's in the same room. So, like for example, one team wins the championship and everybody else loses, but the other 15 teams that get knocked out in the playoffs, only one of them loses that day. It's not like that five minutes. And you think about all the huge ripple effects of this lottery in particular because of protected picks. So Atlanta, I think they end up being maybe the single biggest loser of the lottery because they had so much upside. And then they got, you know, an okay pick from Dallas and their own pick dropped so far. And and I'm sure another part of it, though, that must have been really fascinating in, in the room was that you got to anticipate and watch for the reactions of various things. And for me, the one that was the most striking there was the Knicks. I mean, because, sure, the, the Lakers getting to four, that's, that's a win for them, even if they didn't get Zion, which would have been an amazing pipe dream. The Knicks getting into the top four was certainly a big part of relief, but then I'm sure you were watching going, oh, this is going to, you know, this is going to trap, this is going to crash really, really hard, really, really quickly. Right, yeah, you knew everyone was going to get so excited when the Knicks jumped up because the way they reveal it is in reverse order. But when they actually do the drawing down in the room, they do it one, then two, then three, then four, right? So we already knew the Knicks had lost when Gentry's celebrating. So it's being experienced by the viewing public reverse. And so, like, Alan Houston, when they won the third pick, like, he was the representative in, in the downstairs room. 
Like he wasn't excited at all because I'm sure he's thinking everyone's going to view it as a loss because they didn't get Zion because that's how high the Knicks fans' expectations were. And sure enough, as they're showing the broadcast and, you know, the Bulls don't get the, the number one pick and then the Knicks don't get the number one pick, you kind of hear boos from their fans, you know, because they're so upset that they're, they got eliminated. And you no, know, that was just like right on cue. And, uh, you know, you kind of see Ewing's reaction and everything too. So, um, it was funny because I think in a lot of the buildup or at least the podcast and the reading that I was doing, I didn't see a lot of people really forecasting Zion to go to the Pelicans. So that's really what I was kind of like the most excited to see was how does everyone react to this almost like out of left field team getting the rights to this player who we've all been kind of drooling over for the last two years. And, you know, Griffin was pretty stoic in part because apparently he was just predicting that they were going to win it for like a month and a half. Apparently, after he got introduced at his press conference down in New Orleans, he told a bunch of Pelican staffers that they were going to win the, the, the number one pick. Apparently, he had said some similar things once they got to Chicago the night before the actual lottery drawing. Um, you know, he had these special like uh, Lucky Charms, a class ring and a wooden angel. I mean, he had pulled out all the stops in terms of trying to get into the good graces of the basketball gods. And so to go from a guy who was like on NBA TV's GM school, right? Like I'm going to be judging this like uh half-hearted reality TV show about, you know, which, which people could become, uh, you know, front office executives and, and everything like that to go from that to the leader of a, you know, uh, a, a franchise basically in major transition, investing in the practice facility, $800,000, like you're mentioning, poaching uh, various executives, Trajan Langdon, Aaron Nelson for their front office, and having Zion plus the ability to really build up a pretty impressive bidding war for Anthony Davis all in the span of like two months. I mean, that's just a, a crazy turn of events for him. And I think his undying optimism, uh, which he's kind of, you know, pretty well known for, uh, that really paid off. It's incredible. And a franchise, their fortunes can turn overnight. But the, this turn is, is really incredible because of all of these different things pulling in the same direction and how they relate to each other. I mean, the, the spending on the front office and, and the facilities and everything else like that. So, yeah, it's a much better place for the franchise. I'm thrilled about it. I want every team to be well run, but New Orleans in particular, I just went there for the first time. I, I, I've had a great experience and I have a lot of respect for a lot of different people there. I'm a huge fan of a lot of the players on their team. And so it's, I think it's a really good thing for the league. You know, you could argue that Zion being other places would have been better for the league financially. Should that matter? I don't think it particularly does. But yeah, I mean, we're, we're in a really interesting spot. And I mean, now I'm, you know, sitting here about a month and a week away from free agency and you're just thinking about all of the different things that are going to come. It's, it's, it's so exciting. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's good for the league too, because I want this Anthony Davis thing resolved. You know what I mean? Like, it bothers me when top 10 guys aren't on the court playing like they should be. And it bothered me when Kawhi was like that last year. And I know there was some health stuff, but it seemed like it was more than health. Uh, you know, in terms of his relationship with the Spurs, he was away from the team, didn't even show up at the playoff games and all of that. That really grinds my gears because ultimately, what are these guys supposed to be doing? They're supposed to be out there performing on the court, showing us what they could do. And, you know, Anthony Davis, I mean, the end of his season was just a complete joke for him. Uh, for their organization, put them in a terrible spot for the Lakers and for the league at large. I mean, I just thought it was such a black eye for the NBA. And I think that actually winning that lottery puts them in a position where it's easier to trade him and, and having the Knicks and Lakers jump up winds up making it so they probably get a better return package. So even though you might say, well, look, it would be better from just like a pure hype standpoint if Zion was in a bigger market or if he was on a team like the Hawks where you know, he could, you know, have this like, 
new young gun, you know, partnership with a guy like Trey Young. Uh, I think in terms of this summer's free agency implications, uh, you know, having him land in New Orleans was actually really, really, really good from the league's perspective. I've already taken a lot of your time, but I will open the floor if you want for anything, anything that you would want to discuss briefly before we go. Well, I'm curious, who do you think is a bigger threat to Golden State, uh, Toronto or Milwaukee? And then what do you think would sort of be like the pivotal factor in those series if you were trying to make predictions right now? The pivotal factor for me, which is the reason why I feel the way I do, is I don't trust Toronto's offense against a defense like the Warriors. I think that, you know, Kawhi is going to get his. I'm not as concerned about that, but I think it puts a lot on Kyle Lowry, puts a lot on Fred Van Vliet, and I think that their offense would, would grind down a lot. And we've seen the Warriors win defensive series in the past. I, I think it would, there were, there would be elements of it that would look similar to last year's Western Conference Finals. And that, you know, the, this Raptors team is very good. And last year's Houston Rockets team was very good too, as luck would have it. And I, I think that Milwaukee, they are, you know, Toronto is showing that there, maybe that their half-court offense doesn't have as many facets to it as, as we would like, though they were immensely successful there in the regular season, which I think is underappreciated. But also the Bucks, I even though their, you know, their defense, their scheme, if they're doing the dropback stuff, which they've moved away from at certain moments of the playoffs— is there? I just think they have so much personnel there, and they have guys that I think can get the Warriors out of it. So it's certainly an arguable question, but I'm leaning Milwaukee as being the greater threat. I think Milwaukee is the greater threat, but they also just they need to show up and really show us, like you know, have one of these breakthrough type shooting games, so that what we perceive as their offensive ceiling, uh, which is what they showed during the regular season, like let's let's prove it. Let's make sure we're still there, and uh, that, that all of those assumptions that we had about them. Having, you know, more firepower than Toronto uh, and having, you know, a more reliable, consistent offensive system. Let's make sure those things are still true. Um, but, yeah, I, I think a guy like Mark Gasol is going to have a harder time uh, against Golden State. I think Brooke Lopez will probably be able to stay on the court a little bit uh, better there. Uh, and then I think Giannis, uh, I'm not sure he's quite on that level of like peak LeBron uh, from a couple of these finals recently where Golden State really took all of Golden State's defensive energy, you know, physically and mentally to keep up with him. Uh, but I think he's probably a bigger, tougher uh, challenge for their team defense than Kawhi would be. Um, so I would, I would give the nod. I would agree with you. I'd, I'd give the nod to Milwaukee as being the tougher, uh, the tougher Warriors threat. But I'll be honest. After watching Draymond in Game Three and Four, I think the Warriors are winning the title, man. <laughs> like I, I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure uh, I could talk myself into there being a real threat from one of those other two teams. From what I've seen of the line so far, I think they're a little strong in the Warriors' favor. But as of right now, I would have them as the favorite. And that's pretty incredible considering we don't know the availability of some of their best players yet. And now I have a pretty good idea, not from you know sources or anything like that, of where it's going to be just because I've seen these injuries and guys kept recovering from it before. But, I mean, they're in a really good place. And even though they don't have home court... These other two teams, with the exceptions of a few individual players, haven't been there before, and the finals are a completely different animal, not necessarily in terms of the normal elements, but things like your schedule is totally different. I, I remember Iguodala talking about that. I think that was in 15, maybe it was in 16, about, you know, you practice at different times, your shoot-arounds are at different times, the games are at different times, and the, all of that stuff takes some big adjustments, and we've seen a lot of teams, you know, get knocked out their first time, and that's why you have to get through it. So I'm very, very interested in how it turns out. Yeah, I can't wait to see it uh, either. I mean, I, I think it's going to be exciting. It's always nice to have some fresh blood. Whoever makes it, I mean, Toronto would be making their first finals. Milwaukee would be making their first finals since the 70s, right? So 
Um, that's just different. It's, it's unique. It's unpredictable. It's something that we haven't seen uh, after four straight of the, of the same two teams. Uh, so, you know, even if Golden State was to win in, say, five games or, or something like that, uh, you know, I think it would be, you know, the variety is the spice of life, and that would be nice to see. Well, and also from my perspective, this is the least certain finals winner since 2016. You know, like for me, the, I had the Warriors as significant favorites in 17 and 18 because they had Kevin Durant and they were pretty healthy and all that kind of stuff. And then 16, they would, to me, like the, first of all, the Cavs were very good. I don't want to denigrate them at all, but Steph Curry was coming back from injury and all that stuff when we started the series. So I'm excited to go back to that phrase where I have, you know, like knowing what I know right now, I would have the Warriors as the favorite, but it's way closer than it's been. Yeah, I think that's a, a great way to put it. And I hope Kevin's back healthy because I think that he played so well in the first two rounds that it would be an absolute shame if his injury winds up kind of defining either his playoff run or his role within the team's playoff run, right? Like if he winds up kind of being marginalized because he's either not 100% healthy or he struggles when he kind of like, uh, you know, gets worked back into the system or like, God forbid, he winds up being the reason why they lose the finals because he just can't do it. And they're struggling to kind of like accommodate him and everything else. That would be such I mean, that'd be like a tragedy in, in my eyes based on how well he was playing in those first two rounds. I mean, let's not forget those the 45 and the 50 he put on the Clippers back to back. Let's not forget his early work against the Houston Rockets. I mean, he was playing, you know, basically peak levels of his career. And I just think, you know, from hit, you know, from watching a guy who's going to wind up being a top 10 player all time, playing the best basketball of his life, it would be a shame if, you know, some fluky little calf strain winds up defining uh, this, this two months for him personally. Absolutely. And thank you so much for taking time. Always a pleasure. My pleasure, Danny. Take care, man. Thanks again to Ben Golver for taking the time to come on. You can, of course, read his work at the Washington Post. You can listen to the Open 4 podcast that he does with Andrew Sharp. And you can follow him on Twitter, at Ben Golver, B-E-N-G-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. Love having him on, and we did have a lot of ground to cover. I'm really happy that we did. I have a couple ideas for next week. This is a challenging time in terms of not overlapping with Dunked On because it looks like next week the most logical thing would be an NBA Finals preview. I probably will do that just with somebody else. I just haven't figured out exactly what that's going to be. The timeline works so well for it. I'm guessing that's where I'm going to go. But that's a great reason to subscribe. Download every episode. You can keep keep touch and with real jam radio it doesn't come out on a specific day of the week so that's a great reason to do that because guest availability my own availability varies so much that it can come out different times also a way you can help the show leaving a rating leaving a review in the podcast player of your choosing it's great if it's apple Podcasts. they're still a huge part of our business it's okay if it's not but if you want to be super awesome, if you use a different platform, you can leave a review both places. You can take the time. Really do appreciate that. And it's a way for other people to find the show, really. That's that it, moving it up in the ratings and everything like that, even for a show as long running as Real Jam Radio is, does make a big difference. And it helps other people find the show. And that's why word of mouth is also extremely useful. The single most important thing you can do with this show or any other one that has them is check out our advertisers betonline.ag use that podcast one promo code for a 50 percent welcome bonus pudo tv leading free streaming television service which is awesome yahoo daily fantasy go to yahoo.com slash daily fantasy and use the pod 25 promo code for 25 dollars in free play when you make your first deposit true car great place to sell or trade in your car in cbs sports hq you can check it out on a bunch of different platforms, always good to have sports content out there that focuses on the same things that I like to focus on. So you can check that out. As always, feedback, good, bad, or indifferent is welcome. Best way to do it is NBA at gmail.com. 
emails pop in. It's not ephemeral like Twitter. I make sure to read it. If you take the time to write it, I promise I will read it. Not great at responding right now. Let's just say I have a lot going on, but I do read it because it is extremely important to me. As I said, I'm guessing next week will be an NBA Finals preview, but if something comes up, I will talk about it. Have well, There are lots of different things to discuss as always. And you can check out my other work, Dunked On with Nate Duncan. We're five times a week going strong. The Athletic, my off-season previews. We're getting close to the end, actually, because almost everybody is in. Uh, the Cavs and the Trailblazers came out on Wednesday. I'm guessing the Bulls will come out on Thursday. And then, you know, as teams get eliminated and I'm finishing up the teams that were in the lottery as well. So those things are running together. I'm guessing I'll be done around June 1st and doing a whole bunch of other content as well. And then Nate and I are doing the NBA cast, basically every game for things that are not at Oracle Arena. So that means the rest of this Eastern Conference Finals and the beginning and probably almost all of the NBA Finals. So super excited about that. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.